and welcome to Mandatory Redistribution Party. This episode is about emus, rabbits, pigs, the other pigs, in brackets, the police, and sports. It's a thematic mess, but it's all high-grade stuff. It's more of a buffet than a meal, and if you work out the timestamps between sections, you can listen to them in pretty much any order you like, and it will make approximately as much sense. Enjoy! Bon appétit! Schmarkeluk! You're aware of um, the Australian emu war? Um, you know, of the emu wars. <laughs> I know, I've never heard of that. So when Australia was still like fairly newish, the main thing they wanted was to get their agriculture off the ground. Yeah. We need to get farms and we need them to work. But these emus are migratory. Okay. And so they would just come to the territory that was now farms. They, just, they could just kick down a wooden fence. Yeah, yeah. And they could just eat whatever they like. Oh, yeah, bad, bad lads. I mean, and as a farmer, as a, a human man, yeah. you can't go out and shoo them off. Oh, yeah. They'll shoo you off. Yeah, yeah, Back huge. into your house. Really scary. And so the farmers would go into um, the local government, or I don't entirely know how Australia was governed at this point, hmm. but um, they'd say, look, we can't. Hmm. There's a massive push to get a lot of farming out. Hmm. We can't because they will come in seasonally and wreck everything and just eat everything. Yeah. So how are we supposed to do that? So they Emu declared war. war against emus. Now <laughs> it's not a war, is it? They got the they army declare- involved. They got the army involved. Yeah, but the emus didn't have an army. You can declare war against something that doesn't want to be at war. That's often how wars start off. But here's the because the story gets better. The story gets better, right? So World War One had just happened. So that's yeah. around the time we're talking about. I don't think World War Two has happened yet. I think. Okay. Which means that the Gatling gun, like the machine gun, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is like this still this very new sexy uh, weapon. Yeah, yeah. So they're like <laughs> sexy. Well, it, it was at the time because uh, they were like, we need gun. to get this. This is the most effective yeah, yeah. weapon you can it's get. Sexiest gun. But the problem with um, machine guns is that they at this time they were like big and mm-hmm. heavy, yeah. stationary. Yeah. And do you know what isn't stationary? An emu. An emu. Mm-hmm. Emus can just leave. Yeah. Like they'll get some of them, <laughs> but the emus will just leave. Um, and then presumably pincer movement around the trench and. Oh uh, no! Just leave. Oh, yeah, the, just the emus, again, the emus yeah. didn't get into this. They've actually got much better strategy than uh, Nicholas II during World right, War Right, yeah. Just head at them. Yeah. And then when you're there, what if we don't get there? Hang on, listen to my plan. When you get there. <laughs> <laughs> so what they did then was they tried to mount the uh, machine gun on a car. Oh, fuck. I thought you were going to say someone was trying to mount the emus then. What, a mount a machine gun on the emu? Either mount a machine gun on the emu or uh, the, the, the Aboriginals cottoned on. Alternative universe, the Aboriginals stopped 
yeah. us fucking conquering them. You're taking thinking them of like a weaponized went. chocobo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, even then, like turning the machine gun was impossible, or it meant that to chase them, the machine gun added so much weight to the back of the vehicle. Mm. And after I think they, they tried once and then it failed, and they tried again and then it failed. And so historically, Australia has technically lost two wars to emus. Fucking hell, I knew that. But the way they solved it in the end was just going down to bounties. And so people just take them down on a one-by-one -one basis without having to try to exterminate all the emus through a tactical strike, oh, yeah. which was not possible at that so time. It's a real vindication of the market. So don't, don't do stuff with the state, with the women, but you just outsource it. Yeah, just get G4S in. If you got G4S <laughs> you got now, emus would be gone. Yeah. Emus would be something we were aware of that did exist in the, in the 20th century. Makes me think of the Napoleon rabbit thing. What's that? The battlefield is a scene of constant chaos. The winner will be the one who controls that chaos. Both his own and the enemy's. These are the words of Napoleon Bonaparte, the average height is emperor of the French from 1804 till 1814, and then a little bit in 1815. Napoleon was one of history's greatest commanders, right up there with Riker. It's a total fabrication. His strategies are still studied at military schools. You know, when the uh, US Army invade Iran, they might need a cavalry charge. Napoleon's defeats were rare, the most famous being the 1815 Battle of Waterloo. Uh, but my favourite is the surrender of 1807. Now, in 1815, Bonaparte lost to the combined forces of the Seventh Coalition, 118,000 men, 156 cannons. Death's a lot of cannons. In the summer of 1807, the Emperor of France was defeated by a horde of rabbits. A gregarious burrowing mammal with long ears, long hind legs and a short tail. The rabbit is not renowned for its military prowess. So in 1807, uh, Bonaparte realised he was losing quite badly in Russia. Uh, what with the 340,000 of his men dead, 50,000 deserting and 80,000 of the smartest and bravest boys just deserting. <laughs> Napoleon signed a treaty to you know, finalise that he'd failed. <laughs> and to celebrate, uh, Napoleon had his mates round for a sumptuous luncheon and a rabbit hunt. What better way to commemorate the loss of hundreds of thousands of lives than hunting some helpless animals? Turns out this Bonaparte is a bit of a dick. Bonaparte. Bit of a dick. Napoleon got his chief of staff to organise everything and then you know, the chief of staff wants to impress the top brass of the empire's military so he caged up probably too many rabbits hundreds, maybe thousands so Napoleon and his pals done with the sumptuous luncheon begin to creep through the grass and the rabbit horde is let loose the plan was that the rabbits are going to you know, run away once they're out of the cages uh, and then Napoleon and his lads shoot them and there's so many that wherever they shoot they're going to hit something gotta make sure the powerful people feel powerful but instead they turn on Napoleon the hunted becomes the hunter and given that they could never have found thousands of wild rabbits so quickly and Defo just bought some pet ones what the rabbits were hunting for was like food, lettuce, cuddles that doesn't seem dangerous or threatening but uh, in the moment little furry creatures run towards you uh, th thousands of them <laughs> it was pretty stressful but like they start off like laughing 
right? The most powerful man in the world and his pals just laughing at this horde of rabbits coming towards him. And then uh, the laughter turns to horror. A surge of cuddle-hungry fluff balls clambers up Napoleon's legs, clinging to his trousers. They even got on his jacket. Napoleon summoned his men who tried to remove the rabbits with their sticks. There's just too many. Uh, outnumbered, Napoleon retreats to his carriage. I'm going to directly quote from my sources, the, the Campaigns of Napoleon by David G. Chandler. Vainly did Napoleon's men try to beat the tide back with whips. With a finer understanding of Napoleonic strategy than most of his generals, the rabbit horde divided into two wings and poured around the flanks of the party and headed for the imperial coach. Yeah, a pincer movement. <laughs> Are they rabbits or crabs? Am I right? Do you get, do you get it? You having that? You having that, mate? You having it? <laughs> hey, you having that? You having that? Napoleon had no option but to beat a hasty and disgruntled retreat, but the coach had already started to move before the last furry invader had been flung from the window. Yeah, so this David G. Chandler guy actually taught at military schools like Sandhurst in the UK and the US Marine Corps University. So somewhere there's some Marines learning not to underestimate a rabbit horde. That's on a revision flashcard. Anyway, most powerful man in Europe got owned by some bunnies. Another imperial power fallen to just animals. That's nice. Nature triumphs. Um, wasn't there like a Danish myth about a dog that had become king as well? Not a king, but like a duke or equivalent. That like someone loved his dog so much that he turned the dog into... Does the Caligula horse senator? Right. I think it's like of the same ilk, yeah, isn't yeah. it? I've given my animal this thing. Maybe it's Nero's horse senator. One of the Romans book made a horse a senator. Why not? And also, there's um, a great history of um, putting animals on trial in the UK. Are you aware of that? Oh, big time. Um, and I kind of remember what it was. It was about just trying to extend Christian morality to horses, for some, not ho- to all animals. They would put, do you, know, do you know, in the trials, they would put other animals as witnesses. As witnesses, yeah. And they hanged um, pigs and stuff. Wild hogs. And they genuinely believed that by hanging the pig. It was a deterrent. And, and letting the other pigs see that. Mm. The other pigs would be like, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd better not do that. Yeah. That's wild that like, we're talking hundreds That's of years ago. Wild. But like, why didn't people realize that animals can't, not that they can't have morality. Fine if you think morality has to be universal, right? No, I don't, think, I don't think they're on the level of deterrence. I think it's more mecha- they're seeing justice as mechanized vengeance. So they're okay, like, yeah, that, that pig ate my, all my fucking cabbages. Yeah. String that fucker up. Like, rather than deterrence. I think, no, know, no. Because some people support the death. I've read there's people stuff. Don't. There's a guy who was a historian on this, right? And it, actually, that was his speciality. Yeah. And he came away believing, like, in within their own court records of this, it was believed that it would be a deterrent. Wow. It was believed it would influence the animal's behavior that were left. See, that's really, yeah, that's attributing a lot of that's agency strange, to animals. Isn't it? Yeah. That's a strange way to, it's a strange way to think that 
the animal is that intelligent, but you're going to treat them like an object. Do you know what yeah. I mean? You're, on one hand, attributing them like a human level of sentience, but on the other hand, being like, you are a tool that I use. Fuck. It's so strange. Because I thought, I just thought it, the deterrence, I think it'd be like people who just support the death penalty despite all the evidence that it doesn't have any yeah, yeah, yeah. deterrent effect or the opposite, right? That, that, you know, places with loads of death penalty, there's still a really high crime, blah, blah, blah. But they really do think, oh, uh, they made sure the animals could see it. Fuck. Yeah. What, what, made, what do you mean made sure? Brought them to see it from the farm? Uh, I think they'd do the hanging near the farm. Right. Yeah. Fucking hell. <laughs> it's so strange. But would the crime be explained? So they, so they, they would have, so it's not just that they're seeing the hanged, the, the pigs are seeing another hanged pig. They are assumed to know what that pig has done to do that. Um, isn't, isn't that so how, how is that it, information that, being But that's how a hanging happens anyway. A hanging is always a public event. Yes, but, it but says a public event. We are hanging yes, this following individual. With humans, they go, we're, fuck, we're hanging this pedo for X, Y, I don't know. I said yeah, but why can't, <laughs> yeah. but why can't you just apply the same, we're hanging this pedo pig. Because it's another <laughs> fucking leap, isn't it? To go, to go, to go to the pig. So they understand, they, they don't just need to understand, oh, there's a dead pig. I don't want to be that pig. <laughs> Yeah. I reckon a pig How probably does pig get, get that. Dead? I reckon a pig can look at a dead pig and go, fuck, no, I <laughs> yeah, don't want to do I that. I don't want to be that. But that pig can't then go, oh, that pig ate fucking yeah. John's cabbages. That pig ate someone else's property. Yeah, the pig- I better learn where the delineation yeah, between the commons and private land is. Hang the pig. Hang, like, ding a bell and all the other pigs gather around and they go, listen, <laughs> you lot. This and that pig would still be alive, it would be the hanging, wouldn't yeah. it? So, the, the it's naughty pig, <laughs> naughty pig's there, stressing the fuck out. Someone's putting yeah. a noose around it, uh, and then the the pigs have been gathered. Do you know what he's done? And do you know, do you know why? And all the pig, other pigs look up, they don't know why, they don't yeah. know why. And then he says, Yeah, John's are cabbages, yeah, all of them. That was John's food for a month, and this fucker at him. And that's why we're killing him now. Do you all understand? And the pig's just looking back. Yeah, yeah what's well, going on? Yeah, what's going sure. on? Is there food? Why are we here? <laughs> yeah. um, why have we been summoned over here? Yeah. Yeah. Are you aware of Temple Grandin? Temple Grandin? No. Temple Grandin is known for two things. I think she's fascinating. One is she was like massive... Um, in autism advocacy, she was a professor, realized she had autism and was like, okay, you can be functional and a human being. I have yeah, autism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have autism. And she was just big on like humanizing people with autism. Right. But also her speciality was in um, livestock management. Okay. And she, um, you know how um, pressure on the head is good for people with certain types of mm. um, neurological, yeah, neurological sensory yeah, yeah. stuff. And she realized she could calm cows down by also strapping things that apply pressure to their head. Mm -hmm. And she came up with ways of leading cows into slaughterhouses that didn't cause them to bolt by <sighs> they sort of go in like in a seashell movement. They're like going in a 
in a circle endlessly round. Mm. Because when you move in a circle... A spiral. A spiral. Uh So the cows feel like, I'm uncomfortable about where I'm going. Mm. I feel scared. Mm. Luckily, I see that the path moves away from that. Oh, thank God. Right. Because they just don't have the necessary spatial imaging. So they just get led further and further into the slaughterhouse. Oh. Because bolting... Cows getting scared and just not moving because they're like, something's wrong. Yeah. Um, that there's not a huge amount you can do about that because cows are huge. And if they don't want to go somewhere, mm. you can't realistically okay. make them or make the whole herd go yeah. in there. Um, and that's also where scapegoating came from. Are you aware of that? Mm. They'd just get them to be friends with a goat and be like, we trust this goat. And the goat's like, hey, do you want to go in here? <laughs> oh, we're normally scared of over there. Don't worry. He'll be fine. <laughs> And this lead the whole herd into the slaughterhouse and the goat's obviously fine. And the cows are like, wow, that goat was actually a mole. Whoa. Imagine if the cows then hanged the goat. That would be great. How fucked would it be? If and then show the humans, like get all the humans Yeah, around. got all the humans. Look at what this goat has done. Although that was like quite a naive version of yeah, the cows being like... actually the goat doesn't have all the agency Well, there. just the idea the cows think the goat was working alone yeah. <laughs> and that the humans are finding this out. Oh, wow, that goat was a baddie. We never knew. Let's just go back to how things used to be. Problem oh, and we got you a new goat. Problem with that kind of punitive individualistic justice yeah, system. Yeah, yeah. But it's hard to hang a system. Oh, that would be a nice way to do it. Because you know how like trying to explain systemic injustice can be really difficult. What if you got like the whole of parliament, like the building in a massive noose and sort of suspended it in a noose like, Around the on big a crane? Clock. I was going to say, like, just, the earth. yeah, you, you, you've got the noose around just underneath the, because if the, if the clock tower is the face, yeah, you'd want the noose to be underneath that. <laughs> and then you just suspend it <laughs> hanging over the Thames. And it'll be like, for crimes. That's what it'll say. For crimes. No, no specification. What's the most populist, clean, succinct way you can say it? Bad. Bad. Yeah. Arrow. Cri- so you think for crimes isn't clear enough, but just bad. I think crimes is too legalistic. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> if, if 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 we say for crimes, we're it already leaning on there being a legal the, framework. The, the legislature, they make the laws, mm. you know, they're making So the it's laws not for crimes, it's just bad. Crime, yeah. And then maybe like a sad emoji. Yeah. So that just people from other languages can... Uh, sad emoji, angry emoji. Yeah, aubergine. Yeah. <laughs> Then maybe a crown and then maybe like one of those stop signs. Yeah. Yeah. And then get all the other legislatures to look up, but get all those buildings, ding a bell, and then all those buildings come and look. And you yeah. point, point. Look at, at what the, this has done. How, parliament and go, look. Yeah. Look. It ate the working class's cabbages. cabbages. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I've done a bit more research on this. There are a few theories about why people actually tried and hanged animals. One popular belief is that justice and law were considered divine in origin, and since mankind is there to govern over animals, any disruption of the peace, God's peace, must be visibly restored through some kind of formal ritualised event. Punishment was essentially religious in nature, and a way to show God that you're doing your bit to look after the world. Another theory, which I find more interesting still, was that it provided people a way to govern the commons, the common land that was shared by everyone, without actively policing it. The presence of any kind of police force would imply a governing body, and that's just, that's just not how the commons works. The commons is a common land that is owned by everyone. 
So having this kind of populist public trial and public hanging was the way of certain people to say to other farmers, look, you need to stop letting your pigs run amok in these shared spaces, or look what will happen, they'll, they'll die uselessly like this, instead of bringing your family meat and coin. But there are some scholars that put forward a more interesting theory still. They argue that the trials themselves don't resemble religious divine justice, or look like theatrical pageantry to punish their fellow farmers. They look exactly like what they're claiming to be, real trials where the evidence being submitted and considered looks like they're genuinely trying the animals as moral agents. In 1457, in Savigny, France, a sow and six piglets killed a five-year-old boy. There was a judge, two prosecutors, eight witnesses, and a defence attorney. It was the real deal. What's more, the judge deemed the piglets innocent because they were immature. They were too young to make clear choices and they had been abandoned by their mother so they'd have a harder time learning and internalising the proper code of conduct of the village. In 1379, another boy was attacked. The court determined that one herd initiated the attack while the other merely joined in. But the judge sentenced both herds because their cries during the melee were said to be evidence of their approval of the attack, whether they were responsible for initiating it or not. In 1750, a man and an ass stood trial for bestiality. The man was sentenced to death, but many witnesses stood to testify for the ass's character and said she was, and I quote, in word and deed and in all her habits of life a most honest creature. And it was determined that she was the innocent victim of a deviant master and was found innocent. Historians since the 19th century have found this practice baffling. If not to appease God or to please each other, why would people do this make-believe pretend trials and assigning such agency to beasts and go to the trouble of making them stand for a whole trial? Well, the theory goes that it's because they genuinely considered these animals capable of rational moral decisions. Why? Well, because before the 19th century when feedlots and packing plants turned agriculture into an industry and animals into tools and objects, Pre-industrial agrarian societies involved regular interaction with animals in a relationship that felt more like family members or colleagues than owner and object. A 17th century farmer would spend up to 16 hours a day observing and caring for and working alongside domesticated beasts. They worked with them. They saw them make decisions throughout the day. We do not interact with pigs. We stuff them into tiny cages and push their distended bodies into slaughterhouses. Perhaps these practices in the 17th century feel so backwards and barbaric to us because if we were to consider it otherwise, it would prickle too sensitively at our own conscience. Have you ever seen the mysterious letters ACAB scrawled in a dusty underpass squirreled away under the guiding light of an encircled A? Are you curious as to what these arcane hieroglyphs might mean? It's pretty simple. The A stands for Avril Lavigne, the naughty skate-punk queen who popularised the idea that a skating teenager might amount to something later in life. So why don't you swipe left on him? Hello? Are you there? Are you reading this? Well, I don't like you anyway. You're horrible. You're horrible when you've got a gross arm and you're altogether rank. As for the rest, ACAB stands for Assigned Cop at Birth. Some people believe you're not born a police officer. It's something that society confers upon you once you're old enough to twirl a baton and choke hold a black teenager. Lol, 
only JK, ACAB, or ACAB, stands for All Cops Are Bastards. It's a phrase that naturally has been co-opted and used by all manner of groups who find themselves the natural adversaries of the police. Though in my experience, I associate it most strongly with direct action anarchist groups and or the teenagers that ape their aesthetic. How you feel about the phrase All Cops Are Bastards is a handy litmus test to chart your personal radicalisation journey. Let's begin. Stage one. I'm not comfortable with the word bastard because it's a swear word. Prognosis. You're a Tory. Response. The act of labelling some words good and some words bad are class signifiers to distance ourselves from and police the language and culture of the poor. Swearing is fine. Good even. Stage two. What's wrong with the police? Prognosis. Centrist dad. At best. Response. The police are the boot that carries out the sanctioned violence of the state. They are a force to suppress and control the disempowered, you dummy. Stage three. All police are bastards. Well, what about the good ones? The administrators. The nice officers who are just one day away from retirement. The people who lay down their lives to stop crime. Prognosis. Normal. Slash naive. Response. My uncle's a police officer and he's okay. Well, okay's a bit of a stretch. He's kind of boring and he's got a very strange porcelain doll collection. And for a while he had my piano and there was a bit of confusion about whether or not I'd lent it to him or whether I'd given it to him. And before you leap on me for being bougie enough to own a piano, it was an opportunistic purchase during the 2007 floods. I was living in East Yorkshire, which was one of the epicentres of the floods, and loads of people moved out precious objects like pianos into a big piano warehouse, and that got so full that they were basically going for peanuts. And and anyway, it's gone now because it was too big to go up to my mum's council flat. So there, take that. I'm normal. Anyway, um... It's not about if my uncle's a nice guy or not, because ACAB isn't about making a sweeping statements about the individual characteristics about every police officer. It's about making an analysis of the police as structural agents. You can see this kind of idea in Marx. Marx regularly refers to the capitalists like they're a person, which even he was worried might be confusing, so he included this preface to the first edition of Capital. To prevent possible misunderstanding, let me say this. I do not by any means depict the capitalist and the landowner in rosy colours, but individuals are dealt with here only insofar as they are the personification of economic categories and the bearers of particular class relations and interests. So when Marx talks about what the capitalist does, he's not talking about anyone in particular, but referring to how capitalism works within our economic system. Anyone familiar with hashtag not all men should recognise the logic at work here. Women complaining about men online might find people in their replies saying, oh, actually not all men are like that. But the term men doesn't have to refer to every individual man on the planet. It refers to the category of men and how that relates to the category of women. Saying you've discovered a kindly man who lives down a well and hasn't even seen a woman, let alone oppressed one, is basically irrelevant. And so too is the logic being employed when we talk about the capitalist. And so too is the logic being employed when we talk about the police. Just want to say at this point that what I'm offering here really is just uh, our reading of the slogan. ACAB has spread pretty far and wide, even to racist groups I don't think are going to be using the same kind of structural analysis that I do. And even to, you know, being used as knuckle tattoos on petty criminals who probably just hate the police. So we're not talking about every individual police officer. We're talking about policing. Policing renders you a bastard in your role as an agent that shapes society. 
So how does policing shape society? Well, firstly, the police work to protect the class interests of the ruling class and subjugate any elements of the subordinate class that might threaten those interests. A great example would be during the miners' strike. 6,000 officers charged and attacked striking and picketing miners in Orgreave in South Yorkshire as one of many attempts to break the morale of a strike that was challenging the power of government. It was described by The Guardian journalist David Connors the most violent police behaviour ever seen in a modern industrial dispute. The following legal process was described by the barrister Michael Mansfield as the worst example of a mass frame-up in this country this century. To this day, official records of this event are suppressed by the British government. So while the extent of the violence isn't known officially, iconic imagery of bleeding wounded men and an officer on horseback striking out at a female protester with a truncheon help illustrate how our keepers of the peace behave when the status quo is under threat. Additionally, in return for being violent enforcers of class inequality, police officers are granted the ability to act both above and beyond the law without consequence. For example, Scottish painter and decorator Harry Stanley was shot and killed by the police because they mistook him carrying a table leg as a gun. The officers were reinstated within the year. In 2005, the police mistook a Portuguese 27-year-old Jean-Charles de Menzes for one of the London bombers and shot on him 11 times in total. At an inquest, it was revealed an officer had deleted information, confirming the officers knew the victim was not carrying explosives before the incident. A police officer shot 26-year-old Azelle Rodney with eight shotgun rounds through a car window, stating he believed Azelle was about to shoot him. An independent report revealed that Azelle did not have a gun. The New Zealand teacher and anti-far-right activist Blair Peach was struck and killed by an officer at an anti-Nazi demonstration in 1979. No officers were charged with misconduct, and the officer who was deemed most likely to have perpetrated it now works as a lecturer in corporate responsibility at the University of Sheffield. The death of Christopher Adler, a black British Army paratrooper who was taken into police custody after receiving a concussion at a nightclub. He died slowly in police custody as officers made monkey noises at him and accused him of putting it on. Between 1990 to 2011, just under 100 people died in police custody in the UK. Between those years, only one officer has been convicted for such a death. Of the many stories of police brutality, the themes of information suppression, false testimony by other officers, and a complete lack of consequences for the guilty are ever-present. Additionally, the police force in the UK is an institutionally racist and sexist organisation, with only 21% of police force being female, and only 66 coming from non-white ethnic groups. 12% of incidents in the UK involving police violence are against black minority ethnic people, even though they only make up 3.3% of the population. One third of people shot by the police since 2004 have been BAME. Over the past six years, there have been hundreds of sexual harassment claims made about police officers, of which only a fraction have led to further action. When hit by austerity, Local police services disproportionately cut services and call-outs related to domestic violence over other kind of crimes in order to conserve resources. Not only does the police stand as a major obstacle to social change by curtailing our political right to protest and demonstrate, ready and willing to use extreme force on any group seeking to actively challenge the status quo, but it also fulfills its duty of care to prevent crime in an unjust and unequal way, protecting and serving rich and wealthy, while either disregarding or actively harassing the disempowered and vulnerable. All cops are bastards.
so I've got this theory. I think people either go hard, agree, or hard, that's absurd. Which is that it is more difficult to get second place in any form of competition, to get second place on purpose, than it is to get first place at all. Example. What, what? Okay, so let's just say um, cycling uh, one kilometer race. Mm. If you want to get first, yeah, you have to be the fastest cyclist Mm. in the race. But if you want to get second on purpose, you need to not only be almost as fast as the fastest cyclist, but you need to ensure you're in this narrow window, this tiny gap between the third fastest and first fastest. Which means even though you don't need to be as fast as the first fastest person, the addition of this new challenge to be incredibly accurate with your speed makes it harder overall than being first. So being second intentionally is harder than being first. And this applies to everything. Everything. A Fortnite egg and spoon race. Yeah. Counting as fast as you can. So really second should be the prize. That's what I'm thinking. Because being second, second on should purpose... Be, should still have number two on it, but should be gold. Yeah. First should be silver. Wait, wait, no. The objective, okay. the, the agreed upon objective of anyone engaged in a competition yeah. is to become first. Mm. But if you changed it, so the objective the objective was to become second, that would change the whole dynamic of every competition. <laughs> because everyone would sort of slow down a little yeah. bit. But then if everyone was slowing down, Okay, so on one level it works, right? Because if everyone is sort of slowing down, then being second becomes even tighter. It becomes an even narrower gap. So in fact, still intentionally being second at the end is even harder. Imagine like a World Cup final and both teams are now trying to lose because victory in a World Cup is being second. So if you've got to the World Cup final, you have to get to the World Cup final to be second. So until the final... Everyone's trying to win. Mm. And then as soon as you're in the final, you're trying to lose. Yeah, you just want to be second. But you can fuck it and be so far ahead on points that even if you lose that last game, you still win. I don't think that's how the World Cup works. Okay, I don't know enough. <laughs> I don't know about the World Cup. Possibly, yeah, the Premier League. But yeah, over, so what would happen? You would have second place would be the new first place. First place, I think, should be second place because it still is hard to be first. But you can't know. My point is... I don't think you can change the criteria. I think if I think if you're trying to get second place as you and you know you want second place and not first, yeah, then it's rock hard, and that's where it's interesting. I think as soon as the competition, Other everyone's agreed is we want to be second. Yeah. I think that changes the dynamics again, and then maybe being first becomes being second becomes the equivalent of what being. Tell second you what, was this before. is another thing that makes becoming second intentionally even harder is that you have to not allow it to become widely known <laughs> that's what you're trying yeah. to do so not only do you need to be almost as good as first, number one yeah. you need to hit this very tight boundary between first and third but you've also got to keep it completely secret <laughs> what you're doing and why becoming second now looks like it's the hardest possible thing to do in any competition but like you get the logic of it. you're convinced by what i'm saying that second it's hard. I can't think. I'm, I'm trying desperately to think of competitions where that wouldn't be the case. The only thing, if, 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 if no one knows other than you that you're trying to get second. And also it's magnanimous lead- as well because yeah. you don't get the prize, you don't get the championship, you don't get the leaderboard. It's even got this martyrdom aspect okay, yeah. as well. Fuck. Everything about becoming second on purpose just absolutely 
strikes out the absolute- it's also more difficult because you're deny you're choosing to deny yourself glory it's yeah. not the difficulty of the task it's the denial of actually i am well, you don't have to be almost as good as the first person. You, you probably have to be as good as them. I think you have to be as good as them because you need that mastery that allows yeah. you to control your position yeah. in the ranking. So you have to be as good as the first person, but you are also have to willingly deny yourself glory. Yeah. But I think um, something like the World Cup, where there's like these teams, and then once you're in the final, there's only two of you left. Yeah. If only your team knew we need to we need to tank it. Yeah. Then that'd be a piece. Of That's bits. easy. I yeah. mean, you still have to get there. You still have to be good enough to get to the World Cup final. That's an so easier you're, you're one. Still to, right. It's easier to get into second place then if you're as good as the first place team, right? Because if all the seeding is fair, yeah. then you should both end up in that final. And you just throw it. Oh my god! Seconding. Seconding. Yeah, I think seconding should get big. But not too big, because as we big, say, it ruins, know, yeah, it ruins the, the whole dynamic. game. Because let's say everyone is into seconding, mm. and we'll go try and talk universally, so it applies yeah. to all competitions. Do you think everyone would, what, just like try and perform badly from the beginning? What, what's a seconding strategy? I think as soon as... Because a seconding strategy... No, because actually, the seconding no, strategy... You can't all perform badly. Well, no, the it's seconding whatever. strategy, you, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't start performing badly. You have to start performing at your very best... And then just tail it off, right? You tail it off near the end. Yeah, it's so as, the, as whatever the equivalent of a finish line yeah. approaches the end of the contest. Just tail it off. But yeah. you need to be really good up to then. Yeah, you need to be almost as good as first place. But, but are we as saying, good. Is this, just, are we, is this in a world where everyone knows that second place is the goal? Um, or not? I'm just working out to what degree would it ruin it if everyone started seconding because I'm starting I to think, think it may- would fuck it I, well I'm starting to think maybe it wouldn't fuck it that much okay so let's just go back to a race right 100 meters up until the very last second or two mm. it's a normal 100 meters <laughs> right because everyone's like I need to get as close to first place as I can maybe even get to first place but just before the finish line so what if you, you found yourself in first place yeah. and then you wait you just need to slow down just enough to have only one person overtake you. Right. Okay. No. You run. You you've you've somehow got into first place. You're well fucking clear. Yeah. And then you get to the finish line, and then everyone gets to the finish line, but then no one wants to be third, fourth, or first. <laughs> so everyone sort of stopped <laughs> looking across each other. Shit. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> you know, like going forward a little bit, yeah. and then once you you know once you have to, <laughs> so it'd be. The third, the start of the race, ninety percent of the race, whoosh, yeah, and then on that finish line, that everyone would eventually catch up, surely. Well, let's not forget because you'd well. have to because the person, the person, you so, what you so think? So so if everyone was seconding, everyone would get just before the finish yeah, line, and then and they'd, they'd all stand still. Yeah, because they don't want to. Yeah, because <laughs> no, because don't forget that in this new seconding world, coming first is the next best thing. Yeah, Whereas but why would you third, willfully who gives a do shit? That? Huh? Why, yeah, but you wouldn't willfully put yourself in first. You want second. So you're like, <laughs> come on, you be first. You be first. You don't want to be first. You want to be second. So you're looking, <laughs> trying to go like, oh, go on, lad. Just go over the line. And then I'll, but then yeah. you've got to be like, if you quick. start going towards it, I'll go faster than you. Don't worry. Yeah. I promise. <laughs> Prisoner's dilemma. Golden balls. Oh, whoa. Yeah. You couldn't do it. Or everyone's trying, debating with each other. I didn't think that was a big competition. Yeah, everyone, yeah. You'd just be stood at the finish line looking at each other. 
Well, I guess what would happen, like, if you're talking about, like, football matches, mm. at the last one, people would just be scoring own goals. Like, yeah, big time. at the last one, everyone would want to fuck up their own chances as best as they can. Try and get people sent off. Yeah. Well, no, actually, but that might be fun. You want the people on to help you lose. <laughs> yeah. It might be fun to watch, like, people perform. A lot of co- competitions, people perform as best as they can right up until the last minute, and then they'll try to just underperform. At first, that sounded ridiculous, but the idea of people standing still at the finish line now seems It's quite- what would happen. <laughs> it's what would... I'm confident that that's what would happen, but, but only specifically with races, like cycling or running. Yeah. yeah, in, like, bracketed tournaments where it's, like, one team versus another... You've just got loads of people playing as hard as they can and then one where everyone wants to lose. You'd have to put in, and that would totally change the dynamic of the game, which would be make a really interesting final. Hmm. But but you'd also have to put in stuff like uh, like what counts as cheating, as in cheating with the criteria of second. You can't police whether or not would... people are trying as hard as they can because it's just unpleasable. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, but, so you can't quite police that. But yeah. Imagine trying to stomp out seconding as, as, a, as a sporting authority. Yeah, what would you put put in place? Or a fight? How could an you? An MMA fight? How could you? An MMA fight, they just look at each other. Or they try and get, not, try and get knocked out? Well, how would you try ha- and get a- knocked out? The MMA person, fights work yeah. on points, right? The or is it just person, on knockouts? I don't know. I'm an ignoramus. I know that a lot of boxing and contact stuff like that is on points, You're right? trying to lose, yeah. So how can you lose points? The other person doesn't want, they, they, they want to lose points. Yeah. So they both just, just salmon onto the floor. You would get a lot of just everyone's been trying their absolute best. What if, what if like seconding was something that was known within the sporting community, not to the officials and not to the public, and no one could work out what was happening? <laughs> and, and afterwards, all the sports people are very tight lipped about it all, but it's happening across all sports. Why would that happen? Everyone's seconding. A demon visits the sports people and says, why If a, you win, why do you have to have if a demon? You win, then, because I, I, I'm trying to think of a means by which... Yeah, why is that? I think ignorant. a way more plausible one than a bloody demon. What? All right, what's Okay, that? so as sporting What's more plausible than a listen, demon? Listen to me. <laughs> what you need... Okay, as sports people, you are gripped with this idea that you want to be an exemplar. You want to be the best of the best. Yeah. Right? You want to be a Pokemon master. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Once you have the idea... Once you realise the truth that seconding is a greater <laughs> truth, truth. where well, is the truth? Okay, yeah. no, no, I agree. Yeah, exactly. So you're there scoffing at me. So the it's truth, the realisation. It, no, it, no, I'm scoffing. It takes one person to realise, and then they'll talk to their peers in the sport. The pe- only people that will understand how important this is to them are the people in the sporting community. So you're saying it doesn't necessitate a demon or any kind of intervention. It just necessitates one so- person realising, and it's a full domino effect across all sports. But how does it spread? Because I think you'd think you were mad, like in the same way that I felt the need to tell you when I had this idea, because I felt insane. It's such an idea from the fringes of thoughts <laughs> that you need to verify it with another Suddenly intelligence. Just like Federer just goes, hold on. We're all seconding now. So if you want to be the best in the speech. world, you need to second. And I believe that. Seconding is the only proof that you're the real best. But oh, Yeah, but only if you've done it intentionally. Yeah, oh, an accidental second doesn't count. That means yeah. you're the second best. Yeah, which is why actually maybe they wouldn't talk to other people if you want to truly second you can't go up against um, another if ever, seconder another seconder mm. because you you need to be second to a genuine first place which is where the demon comes in you don't I don't think you need the demon the moment listen boy listen to me you must second All speak right. nothing of this 
Oh, so the demon doesn't issue any threats, any rewards. It just gives an imperative it statement. It doesn't fucking need to. It's <laughs> appeared to you in your bedroom. It's got huge black wings covered in crow's feathers and it's glowing purple. Yeah, and... It's got gargantuan Plague teeth, Dr. Mask. Fangs, yellow teeth dripping with drool and, like, b- blood. And huge... So we say the threat is implicit. like eyes with snake bit in the middle. Hello. Snake You're not, you didn't need to say anything. It's Hello. A demon. You're doing like a Sesame Street voice. Hello. Yeah. I Cookie monster. Second all. <laughs> and what, it'll just say, do this, and you go, well, okay. No, it needs well, to issue a threat. It to you. No, it just needs to explain the second. Oh, it just explains this idea. If yeah, you yeah, really yeah. want to prove you're the best, you yeah. should come second on purpose. Yeah. Goodbye. Yep. Do you think the demon should say goodbye? Um, <laughs> goodbye. Farewell. Yeah. It spins into a vortex. Into yeah, yeah. your belly button. Oh, not in the belly button. That's the bit that terrifies. The demon. I'm calm as anything, but the moment it's coming near the belly butt, no way. Hard out. I'll come third if needs be. Mandatory Redistribution Party was created and produced by Sean Morley and Jack Evans. Our main title theme was created by Ella Jean. Additional music for this episode includes Amphion Angelis by John Blow and Yelanga Yeliba, played by Barnaby Walters, with additional untitled tracks provided by Sean Morley. Quick heads up, as of this week we're going to be going down to one episode per week, as our current rate of production is wildly unsustainable. If things change in the future, we'll let you know, but in the meantime I hope halving your Mando's intake doesn't leave you too hungry. As ever, if you want to leave us a nice review on iTunes or recommend us to a friend, please don't let us stop you. And if you don't want to and you haven't, then that's good. That's called self-care. Well done for looking after yourself. Have a great life.